Blog Talk Radio. Son of a boo. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Uh, so President, former President Barack Obama returned to the White House for the first time since he was gonzo. And, uh, man, he roasted Biden. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about why he's doing uh, a little end zone dance, uh, which is absolutely absurd, and I'll explain why. Um, I got a bunch of union updates today. I got the, uh, the Amazon labor union and what's going on with them and Chris Smalls. I got uh, corporate Democrats smearing progressive Democrats. We got Connor Lamb going after John Fetterman. That story is glorious because it has a, a perfect ending to it. Um, I have corporate media psychopaths begging for war. I have uh, Democratic strategists admitting that they're going to get absolutely slaughtered. Starbucks union, um, a poll on the most and least trusted names in news. So we got a lot today. Oh, and Megyn Kelly, later on in the show, Megyn Kelly goes on the most smug elitist rant of all time, talking about kids in college. You're not going to want to miss that one. She, uh, it's so funny because she postures as being like against elites as she delivers the most elitist rant I've ever seen. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And like I said, we're going to do that with Obama and Biden. So former President Barack Obama returned to the White House for the first time uh, since he left for an event with Joe Biden. And um, I got a couple clips here for you. One of them is the end zone dance and the bragging that Obama does over a specific issue, which rubbed me the wrong way for reasons I'll explain uh, in a little bit. But before I get to that, let's have some fun here because Obama absolutely roasted Biden to his face. Take a look.
Vice President Biden, Vice President. That was a joke. Loki, there was like a 4% chance there was going to be a little Will Smith slap action there. Now, look, I'm, he actually took it really well. I'm happy he took that well. And Obama says they, they staged that beforehand. It, it, it was genuinely a good joke. Uh, but for those of you who are unfamiliar and why this is a soft spot, why this is touching a nerve, um, there was a lot of chatter at the time behind the scenes that Joe Biden was genuinely looked down upon by Obama, by Obama, by Hillary Clinton, um, by a variety of people in the administration because they viewed themselves as like the highly educated uh, liberal elites, basically, and that Joe Biden is an old school backslapping politician. Like, let's get in a smoke filled back room and make a deal with the Republicans and sit down and chat it up. And, you know, he's a guy, he's a handshaker, he's a backslapper, uh, he's from a different era of politics. And um, there was a lot of reporting at the time that you got the sense. Obama definitely preferred Hillary Clinton uh, to succeed him. And that didn't happen because Hillary has the charisma of a dirty diaper. And uh, obviously there's a bunch of terrible stuff in her past, a bunch of terrible stuff in Biden's past too, and terrible policy decisions, et cetera. But um, Joe Biden was picked because, as VP by Obama because Obama knew he might struggle with, like, older or middle-aged working-class white people who are skeptical of a black dude. And so Biden was a pick specifically to hold down that demographic. It was purely political, you know, and, I mean, almost every VP choice is purely political. Um, Trump picked Pence because he thought, I might struggle with evangelical Christians because I'm Donald Trump and look at me and my, what my lifestyle has been. Uh, Kamala Harris was picked because, you know, we're in the era of uh, identity politics trying to catch up to where it should have been a long time ago. We probably should have had a female president a long time ago. We should have had, you know, uh, presidents of different races a long time ago. So it was time for a black woman to be picked. So keep it real. In many respects, she was largely picked because she's a black woman. <coughs> Excuse me. She definitely wasn't picked because of, you know, her popularity because she didn't have any. She had to drop out before Iowa in the race. So Biden was picked by Obama in 2008 for very cynical, purely political reasons. And even though they've done a fantastic job putting on that PR face and presenting to the world the picture they want to present to the world, Obama and a lot of the, you know, close staffers kind of looked down on Biden and kind of thought of him as this ancient relic. So for him to make that joke is like, look here, bitch, you're always going to be the VP in my eyes. Oh, but again, look, he handled that well. There's another cringe video going around of Biden being in the room after the speech. And you have Biden sort of aimlessly wandering around looking lost and nobody wants to talk to him. And then you got Obama shaking everybody's hand, smiling, giggling, engaged in conversation. And, uh, you know, the right is making a huge deal of that because it just looks like sad for Biden. But Loki, I don't know who wouldn't you know, relate to Biden on that shit, because we've all been to a party at one point or another in our lifetimes when we feel like the odd person out. It just, it, it's very stark 
in this sense, because Biden truly is like wandering and nobody wants to talk to him, even though he's the president of the United States. But um, I, I don't hold anything against him for that. I think that's actually kind of relatable, if you ask me. Anyway, so uh, that's the fun part. Now let's get to the, uh, to the serious part of the story. So the whole point of this um, event is to sort of do an end zone dance over Obamacare. They want to talk about Obamacare and how many lives they improved and talk about health care, talk about how hard it was to get it through, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're making some minor tweaks to it moving forward, which is supposed to be beneficial for people. And so then Obama delivers this portion of the speech. Let's watch and they'll react. But despite great odds, you and I were determined. Because we've met too many people on the campaign trail who shared their stories. And our own families had been touched by illness. And as I said to our dear friend Harry Reid, who uh, is missed, wished he was here today, because he took great pride in what we did. I intended to get health care passed, even if it cost me re-election which for a while looked like it might. Uh, (laughs) But for all of us, for Joe, for Harry, for Nancy Pelosi, for others, the ACA was an example of why you run for office in the first place, why all of you sign up for doing jobs that pay less than you could make someplace else, why you're away from home sometimes and you miss some soccer practices or some dance recitals. Because we don't, we're not supposed to do this just to occupy a seat or to hang on to power. But we're supposed to do this because it's making a difference in the lives of the people who sent us here. And because of so many people, including a lot of people who are here today, made enormous sacrifices because members of Congress took courageous votes, including some who knew that their vote would likely cost them their seat. Because of the incredible leadership of Nancy and Harry, we got the ACA across the finish line. So a quick side point on style. You can see how he won the presidency twice. You can see how he's a great speaker. Even though he's speaking in a professorial way and in kind of a slow way, he still has an ability to connect with the audience that, um, I mean, Biden may have had in the past, but he's lost it with old age. Uh, Trump was actually a, a communicator that worked in his own respect because he always seems like he's so off the cuff, which people assume feels like authenticity. But you can see here why Biden, or why, excuse me, why uh, Obama won the White House twice because he's just he's just good at this politician stuff. Now that's the style point. The substance point is this: only the Democrats can get up there and brag about a reform that still leaves 27.5 million people uninsured. I looked up the number last night to make sure I got it right because the number I had read previously was 30 million people are still uninsured in this country. 
turns out the exact number as of 2022 is $27.5 million. I don't know why you're bragging. Look, I get the idea that, hey, sometimes you've you got to take a tiny step forward and you can't take a great leap forward and there's all these institutional barriers in the way, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is, and we've known this for years, you had a supermajority at the time, a supermajority. Democrats could have gotten anything that they wanted through. Supermajority. And they simply did not get through. Forget Medicare for all. They didn't even get through a public option. And then now, in retrospect, you're going to try to, like, put lipstick on the pig of a Republican health care reform and act like, man, we sure did a great job, didn't we? Are you kidding me? First of all, the Republicans, you know, shiv this thing in the side 47 ways to Sunday and undermine it and, and undercut it and found a way to weaken it. So if a test of the law is its longevity, well, then it's failing miserably on that front. Now, you might say, Kyle, don't blame them for that. What are you going to do with the Republicans? But you have to understand something. And this is like the brilliance of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, etc. When you have programs that are more universal in nature, it is so hard to undercut them and undermine them and succeed on that front because it becomes political suicide to do it. And so if you don't go big and bold and universal, well, then you're opening the door for them to destroy it. And so even though you might say, well, blame the Republicans for that, I do. They have agency and they were doing the terrible things on their own. You also got to understand there's ways to craft these policies and these programs that make them more successful in the long term. And they simply didn't do that. So again, we have a country where 27.5 million people are uninsured right now. There's still tens of thousands of people who die because they don't have basic health care. And they're doing an event bragging about the health care reform that they did. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? There was a report that came out, I believe it was Public Citizen, which found that because we don't have universal health care, 330,000 people, excuse me, I believe it was we could have saved 330,000 lives during the COVID pandemic if we only had universal health care. That policy change alone would have saved 330,000 lives. Now, how do they determine that? I don't know exactly how they did that study and how they came up with that number, but the general idea is the people who don't have insurance and don't have enough money in the bank where they feel like I can just go to the hospital and everything will be taken care of and I won't go bankrupt, a lot of people didn't go get treatment because they feel like I'm not insured and I can't really afford it. And then you have people who maybe went way too late because they were like, look, I can't, I can't afford it. And then when it got to the point where they were struggling to breathe and like, I have to go to the hospital, by the time they got in there, it was too late. If they had gone four days earlier or something because they had insurance, well, then their lives maybe would have been saved by remdesivir or whatever the other treatments are that they were using. So I don't, you can't, to brag in with this system, with this abysmal system, look, I don't want to, I don't want to be an unnuanced douche here, okay? Because the fact of the matter is there were many provisions of Obamacare that they deserve genuine credit for passing. You know, um, they couldn't, uh, insurance companies could no longer say, you have a pre-existing condition, so we're not going to cover you. Kids were able to stay on their parents' healthcare rolls until they were like, what, 21 or 25 or something like that. Um, you can point to a number of things that are genuinely good. I think the Medicaid expansion was one of the best parts of it because that was an expansion covering more people with the universal health care that we have for 
people who are on the lower rung of the economic ladder, okay? So there were provisions that were great, but the fact of the matter is the heart of the bill came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. The idea was I'm going to force most Americans to buy health insurance on the private market using the for-profit insurance companies. We're going to force you to do that. So it gives, you know, the the insurance companies like a captive audience, if you will. And that's one of the reasons why this was this ultimately passed, because it was good for the bottom line of the health insurance companies. And so, look, I'm old school. I'm of the belief that if the government's going to tell you you have to have X, Y, and Z, okay, bitch, provide it. I guess you're going to have to provide that. can't force me to buy some shit on the private market, but they do, and that's what they did. And this is why it's a plan that was originally supported by Chuck Grassley and Mitt Romney, um, again, this, is, this was the right-wing answer to single-payer health care in the 1990s. And the Democrats went from single-payer health care to public option, and then all the way to, we're just going to do your idea, the Republicans. And, of course, the Republicans are so insane and so obstructionist that they just pivoted to, our health care position is do absolutely nothing. I mean, for real, that was their answer. Their response was like, everything's good the way it is now. We don't want to give a single extra person health insurance, you know, we don't want to reform the system at all. We still want to let health insurance companies kick people off for pre-existing conditions. So their position was absolutely ludicrous. The status quo was beautiful, was their position. And the Democratic position became the Republican position. And now they're bragging about it. Guys, this is not something to brag about. Now, I will say, the point of this event was not just to brag about Obamacare, which is, again, astonishing to me that they would do this. Um, it was also to say, well, we're announcing some changes, and the changes are going to get potentially millions more people health care. And the changes are, they're, uh, from what I read about it, it seems like they're closing some family loophole that was there. So some families were unable to get uh, Obamacare, and they're closing that loophole, so it's going to cover more people who are part of families. Something along those lines, maybe there's one or two other tweaks as well, and they're bragging about that. And you know, forgive me for wanting a better system and wanting better politicians, but to me, if you're going to do this event, at the end of it, you got to announce an executive order that's like, we're using the emergency powers that are um, delegated to us through Obamacare to expand universal coverage using the emergency provision that's in, there was a town in Montana, I think it was. We covered the story on the show. There was a great um, More Perfect Union piece on it. There's a town in like Montana that was poisoned. And under Obamacare, they allowed that town to basically have a version of Medicare for all. Like everybody's covered there. They were impacted by this. Um, and so under Obamacare, there's a provision like in emergency situations, you could just give people health care using Medicare. And um, because we have a pandemic, because we have so many people who died as a result of it, because it's still ripping through the country, even though, uh, you know, it went down for a while, but now it looks like it's ticking back up with a new sub-variant, if you will. You could just announce, uh, you know, President Biden signing executive order to give everybody impacted by COVID health care. Um, and really, you can make a legal argument and David Dayen of the American Prospect has a great article about this, and he's talked quite a bit about it. You can make an argument that 
you can use this provision in Obamacare to just give everybody health care in the country. Now, you say, hey, maybe that'll get slapped down in court. We have pretty right-wing courts right now. To which I respond, even if that's true, make them do it. Make the Republicans come out against giving everybody health care, because they will, and then make the courts slap it down. But if you're the one who goes out there and says, we're going to give everybody health care, and we have the authority to do it, and here's the statute, here's the provision, here's what the executive order says, here's how it's going to function, well, that's some gangster shit. That's some FDR-style shit. That's some, I'm going to do the right thing, and then if you're against it, okay, but at least I did the right thing over here. So there is no executive order at the end of this which does that. It's just like, you know, minor tweaks to Obamacare to make it slightly better, which, again, is better than nothing, but, you know, this should be the Republican position, and the Democratic position should be not one person uncovered, not one, but there's 27.5 million. So it's the low bar that drives me crazy, man. It really is. It's the low bar. It's the half measures on top of half measures within the half measures, you know, and um, then acting like that's revolutionary. No, it's not. You kept, you gave the insurance companies, for-profit insurance companies, even more power under the system. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with that at all. And they act like that's the best we could have done. It really isn't. If Obama played the FDR game and the LBJ game, and he twisted arms, and he knew who to kill with kindness and who to play hardball with, they absolutely could have gotten at least enough votes for a public option. And he didn't. And he didn't. And it's the same thing that happened with Biden and Build Back Better. If it was just Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin in the way, you got dirt on both of them. You could have killed them with kindness to see if that worked. And then when it didn't work, okay, you got all sorts of ammunition to use. You do. You know, they're both criminals. The Department of Justice should have, been invest- should have been investigating them, should have been investigating Joe Manchin's family for being involved in price gouging with Big Pharma, which they are, and we have emails proving that. Could have made him an offer he can't refuse, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And so here we are. Anyway, there you have it. Obama returns to the White House, brags about his half-measure-ass um, health care law, and roasts Biden along the way. All right, next. So we have some pretty incredible reporting here from Ken Klippenstein of The Intercept. Let me go ahead and show you guys what it says. Leaked new Amazon worker chat app would ban words like union, restrooms, pay raise, and plantation. Also, grievance, slave labor, this is dumb, living wage, diversity vaccine, and others. So here's a, a total list of the words that are would be banned on an Amazon worker app, which isn't fully out yet, like they're working on it, but this is what we know from reporting behind the scenes and from leaks. Here are words that would be banned. I hate, union, fire, terminated, compensation, pay raise, bullying, harassment, I don't care, rude, this is concerning, stupid, this is dumb, prison, threat, petition, grievance, injustice, diversity, ethics, fairness. I love that ethics is even bad. Injustice has been accessibility, vaccine, senior ops, living wage, representation, unfair, favoritism, 
Rate, Tot, T-O-T, Unite, and Unity, Plantation, Slave, Slave Labor, Master, Concerned, Freedom, the word freedom is banned, Restrooms, Robots, Trash, Committee, Coalition. I love this story because it shows how sometimes we live in a world where there are genuine comic book villains. That's what this tells me. I mean, to ban the words freedom, living wage, and union? How ridiculous is that? In no uncertain terms, this is the Amazon Worker app saying, you know what conversation is off the table? Any sort of commentary on poor conditions in the workplace. I mean, they're banning slave and slave labor, which means what? In their minds, they think some of these people might think the conditions are really, really rough and might compare it to slave labor. And so we got to ban that and make sure that nobody can make that claim. And the other thing is, guys, I mean, how, even if all this stuff was banned, how ineffective is this? There are obviously ways around the ban of certain words. Like, all you have to do, take the word slave, for example, or slave labor. Just take the A and make the A an at sign, and then you could say, like, slave and slave labor, which is minor tweaks and minor changes. Anything that has an O in it, just make the O a zero. You could take anything that has, you know, whatever, an I in it, just make the I an I with one of those little accent thingies. This is what, by the way, we used to do this to try to skirt the YouTube algorithm because, you know, they've cracked down in a number of different ways over the years. And so when you're covering a topic that is risque and controversial and is almost certainly going to be demonetized, you try to beat the system by, you know, putting those words with those letters with the little accents over it or uh, changing some things to numbers instead of letters. And there are ways around it. Now, honestly, it didn't work that well on YouTube. That's, that's the sad reality. So maybe it wouldn't work too well on this either. But how are you going to ban every iteration of spelling a word in a funky way? It seems impossible. So on top of being, in principle, a stupid thing to do, it's also totally impractical. There's like zero pragmatism in this. All you're doing is showing the world, and here's the main point, that the way the system functions right now is like an authoritarian dictatorship. That's the way the system functions right now. To have a worker app where they can chat on it. But there are all these topics that are off the table. Any sort of working condition stuff is off the table. What you're saying is, we have something to hide, and you are not in any way, shape, or form free if you work here. They literally banned the word freedom. They banned the word freedom. Unbelievable. It truly is unbelievable. So, not that you guys had any doubt as to whether or not, you know, management would be hostile to a union or living wages or whatever. Um, now you know in no uncertain terms. And by the way, we talk, when we talked to Chris Smalls, the Amazon Labor Union president now, who just won this big thing, he told us that even when Amazon did the whole, like, okay, we're going to pay everybody $15 an hour in response to Bernie and Ro Khanna doing the Stop Bezos Act, um, even that was a trick, even that was a scam. Because what they did is they took away other sorts of perks that the workers could have, um, which ultimately gave them more money, like owning some stock in the company or whatever it was. 
and they took all that away and made it $15 an hour, which means they actually ended up paying the workers less when all was said and done. So it's, they're just deeply untrustworthy. What Bezos cares about uh, is the profit margin, his own wealth, and looking after the shareholders because he has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to give them as much as possible. What he does not care about is the workers. In fact, there's been reporting that they try to make it so there's high turnover. They hire young people, very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and then they wear them out real quick, and then they get them out of there and they bring in new people, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and go through the same cycle and go through the same process. The, the truckers, as we know from other reporting, I think by Ken Klippenstein, pissing in bottles, shitting in bags, because they got to try to make a super tight schedule. Um, the warehouses, often there was no PPE during the height of COVID. Uh, there was no social distancing. There were people passing out as they're working. Some of the factories uh, and facilities don't have the climate controls to be way too hot or way too cold in there. There are all of these problems, all of these problems. And um, now you know they're trying to come up with a worker app. And they want to take every, every issue that might need addressing, it's off the table. Not allowed to discuss it. Not allowed to change it. Not allowed to bring up injustices. Not allowed to, I mean, even, is, did they say restroom is banned? Is that one of the things that's banned? Is that one of the things that's banned, guys? I'm not sure. I'm looking at it now. If it is banned, yeah, it is. Restrooms, it's banned. So what does that say? Like, if you're forced to keep working when you need a bathroom break, they don't want you to be able to bring that up. And then no wonder why slave is banned as well, because your response to that is going to be like, this is some slave shit. I can't even go to the bathroom when I want to. When you're a kid and you're in school and you've got to go to the bathroom, they're all like, oh, yeah, of course, go to the bathroom. When nature calls, you've got to go, you got to go. In Amazon, no, it doesn't work like that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So just understand, again, the main point here, the main takeaway is what? Oftentimes in America, people sing about the virtues of democracy and how wonderful democracy is. But then most of our waking hours, it's spent at work. And um, the way the system functions now, companies, and especially large multinational corporations, they function as little authoritarian dictatorships with a rigid hierarchy. There's the owner, and then there's, you know, a manager, maybe a few underneath them, and then there's the workers. And more or less, whatever the hell they say goes, with minor exception. Um, so we, we can't, on the one hand, talk about the value of democracy, and on the other hand say, but where we spend most of our time is a rigid authoritarian dictatorship, where there's no freedom, no freedom of speech, no give and take, no input from the worker. You just do what you're told. But that is the system that we've crafted, this massive contradiction. Political democracy is wonderful, but workplace, workplace democracy would be abysmal. This is how we look at it. I don't know how people reconcile that. I don't know how they reconcile it. I don't know how political democracy can be viewed as such a wonderful thing, political representative democracy. But then in the workplace, we all think authoritarianism is wonderful. No, this is what the authoritarianism leads to. It leads to no bathroom breaks. It leads to really tough working conditions. It leads to unfairness. It leads to a complete lack of even basic freedom. It leads to poor wages. 
And so this is why, a great reason why, man, that union is so necessary. Because at least what a union does is tries to change that balance of power at least a little bit to represent more of the workers' voices. So shout out to Chris Smalls. Um, shout out to the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island. Plowing forward, man. And I hope other Amazon places unionize as well because they definitely need it because this is the culture of management. The culture of management is you're going to do what I say and that's all there is to it. And if you don't, you're gonzo. That's the culture. And it's so authoritarian and it's so dictatorial that you can't even have free speech on the worker app. You can't say, make basic complaints. And by the way, what's the nature of a complaint? It's, it's an attempt to say, we need to improve this problem. But Amazon doesn't view these things as a problem. They view it as necessary. They view it as part of the business model. They view it as a good thing. Well, if we drive our workers like slaves, maybe, you know, Greg gets his pack of condoms 14 minutes earlier. <laughs> I mean, that, that's like the gist of it, right? I have no idea if Amazon sells condoms. <laughs> but that's the gist of it. That's the gist of it. I would love if Amazon had a, a, an option where it's like sometimes they have same-day delivery, one-day delivery or whatever. If they had a button where you could pick where it's like, as fast as you can get it to me, without abusing your workers or having truckers piss and shit in their truck. Click. I'll click that. And you know what? Maybe that's two days. Maybe that's as long as it'll take. But I'd much rather, I'd much rather feel I have a clean conscience about the nature through which something got to me than order something and get it later that same day. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm alone in that, you know, or maybe I'm part of a minority if you poll the American people. Hey, what do you think? But my guess is, if all the facts are on the table, actually most people would agree with me. What's the fastest you can get me the thing without ruthlessly abusing your workers and making it so truckers can't even take a bathroom break? <laughs> that, I, I will click that button. But, of course, that ain't an option. Because they think everything's working just peachy. Well, it's peachy for everybody except the workers. So, there you have it. Uh, culture of authoritarianism and dictatorship at Amazon, and it's super clear. So Chris Smalls went on CNBC. Now he's being invited on all these news outlets after the Amazon labor union victory. Um, he wasn't anywhere beforehand. I mean, when he first got fired, when he led the walkout over a lack of protections during COVID, yes, some news outlets talked to him then. But then as he started doing the labor union organizing, nobody was talking to him in mainstream, nobody was talking to him in mainstream media. Nobody was. Nobody. Okay? Except, well, we're not mainstream media. We're independent media. But Crystal had him on breaking points about a zillion times. And we had him on Crystal, Crystal Kyle and Friends before the victory, when they were doing the labor union drive. You want to know why? Because we care. And we actually wanted the Amazon labor union to win. And so we were ahead of the story. They are behind the story. And that's indisputable. It's indisputable. So Christian Smalls, now he's being invited on all the you know, mainstream media outlets. And um, he goes on CNBC here. Look at the nature of the question being asked, or questions, I should say. And then I think he hits this out of the park with his answers. Take a look. 
Um, this started as a highly contentious relationship between you and Amazon to, to no small degree because people there belittled you, alienated you, thought they could win by making you the face of the union push, but you've won uh, this round. You're, uh, so my question is on your strategy from here. Amazon's got a new CEO, right, since you started this. You are now a national figure in this new labor uh, movement. What's your approach from here? To what degree do you think you can cooperate more with Amazon leadership, or to what degree do you think that's wise? No, they don't have no choice. You know, the revolution is here. That's what we just witnessed on Friday. Um, we're going to organize uh, buildings all across the nation. You know, we in the last 72 hours, uh, we've been contacting from workers all over the world. Um, so they want to unionize. We're going to absolutely help them. We're going to get it done here in New York first. We have another election coming up in three weeks, so we're right back at the campaign, um, on the campaign trail. And once we're finished here in New York, we're going to spread just like the Starbucks movement is spreading across the nation. Hey, Chris, you clearly uh, understand a, a big part of the Amazon uh, workforce. But for those who voted uh, against unionization, what were their reasons, do you think, and what do you have to say to change their minds? Well, you know, I don't think we have to say anything too much. You know, they were misinformed. Amazon spent millions of dollars putting them into captive audiences for the last few months, every 20 minutes, every single day. Um, so imagine being put into a classroom and being drilled uh, anti-union propaganda for months. Of course, of course, some people are going to fall victim to that. And I think that's what, that's what we saw. You know, a lot of people just read it, you know, understand it. Um, some people don't understand So, of course, you know, they went to that. But I think if we show them better, then we talk about it. We deliver our contract. We improve the quality of life. Um, I think they'll all come around and be on board. To what degree are you going to personally engage with Amazon on that? And to what degree do you change into more of a diplomatic mode now as they need to talk to you? Well, you know, that's what we have lawyers for. You know, so we're going to add more to our cavalry. We want to um, bring in more legal representation. Um, and, you know, I just really, I just have to oversee it, just make sure that this is what the workers want. You know, that's my job as the interim president. Uh, whatever the workers want, you know, we make sure we put it in writing and we give it to the lawyers. The lawyers deliver what we want, and, and that's exactly how it should be. The workers should be the ones making the contract, and that's what we're doing right now currently. We already dropped off two letters to the general manager, letting them know our demand and let them know how it's going to go from here on out. You know, they have to come to the table eventually. If they don't, you know, we will take further action. I'm, I'm, I have no doubt in my mind that we'll receive all the help and support that uh, that we need to uh, deliver a contract now that the world is paying attention. Damn. Damn, he killed that. Let's go through it. Um, the first question is like, well, Amazon has a new CEO, What's your approach from here? Can you cooperate more? Is that not wise? So they're asking him, like, okay, all right, all right. But now you're, it, everything's going to cool off, right? And you're going to uh, come to the table with management, and you're going to be reasonable, right? Now, in their mind, what, what is reasonable? In their mind, reasonable is, like, take whatever scraps they're willing to give you. That's the gist. I mean, it's CNBC. CNBC, for those of you who don't know, is – Beyond a business, they may even be worse than Fox News. Oh, seriously, they may even be worse than Fox News. CNBC, during the lead up to the 2008 Great Recession, 
and stock market crash, they were literally doing rank propaganda for the big financial institutions. They'd invite on the CEOs who were like, there's no downturn coming. Invest more of your money in us. This is wonderful. It's supposed to be the financial expert outlet, financial news experts, and none of the hosts saw it coming. And in fact, they were arguing the opposite. Oh, it's sour grapes if you think there's going to be a downturn. This is a bull market. I don't know what you're talking about. And so they would just allow the CEOs to come on and do rank propaganda. And I'm sure a lot of people lost a lot of money believing those charlatans and those con men and those frauds. They are just the mouthpiece of corporate America. That's all CNBC is. So the nature of that question is like, well, you're going to be reasonable, right? You'll take whatever scraps they give you, right? I love how one of his responses is, the revolution is here. They don't have a choice. Uh, yes. Inject that straight into my veins. And Chris says, we got people contacting us from all across the nation, from all across the world. And we're going to organize buildings across this nation. It's time, baby. It's time. There are a lot of lessons from how they succeeded on this front. There are a lot of lessons that other workers need to take to heart as to how you fight back, how you win. And Chris can teach all of those lessons. Um, then he's asked about, well, what about the workers who chose not to unionize? Well, um, Chris explains, I, no ill will against them, but they were effectively brainwashed. They were force-fed anti-union propaganda by Amazon. And as soon as they see the value of the union, then they're going to understand it because we're going to deliver a contract that improves their lives, improves the working conditions, improves quality of life. I love that answer. I mean, it's the exact, it's, it's pitch perfect, that answer. Look, they're not our enemy. They're our allies. I understand why they did what they did. They were afraid, hey, what if I vote for it and I lose my job or whatever? But we're going to deliver for them, and then they'll see why this is the right thing. You know, look, why did it succeed in New York and it didn't succeed in Bessemer, Alabama? Well, in Bessemer, Alabama, you know, those were like the only jobs available. So they didn't want to, you know, potentially risk losing their source of income. That's understandable. Alabama is also you know, has a history of really not being a union stronghold. New York is one of the most pro-union states in the country. If you don't work at Amazon, you know, there are other places where you can work. And so even if you lose that job, it'd be terrible. I'm not trying to downplay that, but people would have other options. And also Amazon really doesn't have the option of pulling out of New York, where maybe they could have pulled out of Bessemer, Alabama. So there are a number of reasons why it worked. But um, I love his answer there truly is, the tone of it is, on point. Um, then he's asked the question again, to what degree do you change into diplomatic mode now? So, hey, you're going to be reasonable, right? You're going to, you know, play ball. You're going to take whatever scraps they're willing to give you, right? And his response is basically, no, like I'm here to represent the workers. Now we have lawyers who are going to engage in the negotiation, but I'm here to represent the workers. And if Amazon doesn't play ball, we will take further action. Oh, Chris, you're nailing it, man. You're nailing it. That's him saying, here are our demands. If you meet them, that's great. If uh, there's a little bit of a give and take, but we can come to an agreement, that's great. But if, you're, if they are not reasonable, well, well, now we're unionized, and we'll just go on strike. That's what he's saying there. 
the reason why this is so impressive and important is that in so many different ways, the left in this country has been slapped around, disrespected, spit at. We've had loss after loss. Anytime there's a victory, it's just like what one would call a moral victory, right? This is an example. Ain't no moral victory, bitch. This is a victory victory. And it shows you that some of the most promising headway is on unions, collective bargaining, organizing, on the ground, bottom up action. It is working. It is working. Remember the John Deere protests where they got a good contract? Excuse me, the John Deere strike, I should say. It's working. Workers are taking back power. For the first time in my lifetime, they're taking back power. And all they had to do was realize, look at each other and realize the power that they have. Hey, if we stand together in solidarity, we can get some fair working conditions. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. They're going to come at us with everything they have. But if we truly stand in solidarity, and if we unionize, we can win battles. And so this is a spark that's going to lead to a wildfire where not just other Amazon facilities are going to unite, and they are, but also workplaces across the country, people who were never thinking about a union before, who now look at each other, the workers look at each other like, you want to give this a shot? You want to maybe do this? And that is so encouraging. The things that make me happiest, where I see the most hope, this, the union movement going on the offense now and expanding, and direct ballot initiatives, which, of course, like 80% of the time roughly go the right way, where you give people in a state a direct vote on something, and they almost always pick the right thing. I mean, Trump won. In 2020, Trump won the state of Florida, but they raised the minimum wage also through a direct vote. So 60% in Florida voted to raise the minimum wage. So that shows you even if, you know, politically they might be all over the place or they might even lean right, even they were like, yeah, minimum wage should be higher. So when you give people a direct vote, how many states have we legalized weed through a direct vote? I mean, this stuff is... That's all important. So there's hope. There's hope, and we're seeing it right now. He nailed that interview. Can you cooperate more? How about they cooperate more? How about that? You know, are you going to play ball? I'm here to represent the workers. And if they're not good faith actors in a negotiation, well, we're going to take further action. Oh, yes. The revolution is here. The revolution is here indeed. Um, again, very proud that we had uh, Chris Malls on, Crystal Kyle and Friends, before the victory, ahead of the story, trying to help. Very proud that Crystal's had uh, Chris Malls on Breaking Point a number of times. And uh, now, yet again, all the other outlets are playing catch-up. And uh, even now that they're bringing him on, look at the nature of a lot of the questions. The nature is like, you're going to be cool, right? You're going to be cool? Are you going to, are you going to relax? Are you going to take the scraps? And his answer is a clear cut, hell no. Okay, next. This is a good one. I like this one. So there is a, uh, a primary going on for the Senate in Pennsylvania, for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. And you have corporate Democrat Connor Lamb up against uh, progressive Democrat 
John Fetterman. There's a lot of stuff like about Fetterman. You know, he's a, he's a worker's kind of Democrat. Um, I love that he goes around. He went around wearing, like, basketball shorts to meet President Biden. I cannot tell you how much I respect that. <laughs> oftentimes, you guys see this. I'm sure you have. That uh, oftentimes when I do Crystal Kyle and Friends, I'm wearing, you know, my button-up shirt or whatever and the, and the jacket, but I'll wear, like, matching sweatpants underneath where it's like, maybe people will think these are business pants, maybe not, but either way, I want to be comfortable, so I'm going to wear these shits. So Fetterman is <laughs> exactly like me in that respect. He's like, oh, why, why, why do I have to wear that? Why can't I just be comfortable? Imagine me. It was like a day in winter, and he met Biden outside in, like, basketball shorts. Goat shit. Love it. Anyway, but his politics are decent. His politics are decent. Way better than Connor Lamb. Um, so Connor Lamb is down big time. This is the corporate Democrat. This is the guy with all the institutional backing, all the big money backing. He's got a super PAC. Connor Lamb is getting desperate. Fetterman's up by a lot. And so now he's going dirty. He's doing dirty politics. So his super PAC runs an ad on Fetterman where they attempt to smear him. Now, you're going to see how they attempt to smear him. Hilarious. Let me show you the ad, and then I'll react. Can Democrats trust in the race for Senate? Connor Lanz, a former prosecutor and Marine. John Fetterman's a self-described Democratic socialist. Lanz stood up to Republicans to protect Social Security. Fetterman's been called a silver spoon socialist. Lanz won three tough races against Trump Republicans. Republicans think they crush Socialist Fetterman. With all that's at stake, Fetterman's a risk we can't afford. And Congress is responsible for the content of this ad. I'm not... I'm not some sort of extremist like a democratic socialist. Fetterman's a self-described democratic socialist and a silver spoon socialist. Thank you for the ad that you're running back in 1993. You know, people are going to watch that and they're going to go, okay. Bernie describes himself as a democratic socialist. Now, by the way, he's actually not. He's really a social democrat if you go like by the textbook. Um, He's for, like, a hybrid system. And he's the most popular politician in the country consistently in every poll. So do you think it's really a detriment to say democratic social? Let me tell you something. Everybody knows right now we have a capitalist system or a version of a capitalist system. And people know they're getting hosed. And so that's why in some polls, depending on what age group you look at and whatnot, in some polls, democratic socialism is either equal to or even beats out capitalism. Now, Look, don't get it twisted. There are plenty of polls where capitalism wins, too, okay? Uh, But this isn't the own that you think it is. That's not the own that you think it is. Now, there's another uh, little problem with it. It's not even true. He doesn't describe himself as a democratic socialist. He never has. I think their evidence for this or their claim is that since he sought the endorsement of the DSA in 2016, therefore they're extrapolating and saying, see, he's a self-described democratic socialist. That's not necessarily the case. I'm sure if I ran for office that I would seek out DSA's endorsement, and, but I more self-describe as a social democrat or like populist left. I guess in some ways you could say maybe libertarian socialist, but I don't describe as a democratic socialist. If I seek out DSA's endorsement, that doesn't necessarily mean you're 100% in agreement with everything in their platform. That doesn't mean that. Now, the other thing is, 
uh, he endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016. Maybe they're using that to say, see, self-described democratic socialist because he's endorsing somebody who describes himself as a democratic socialist. I don't know what sort of a stretch of an argument they're using. Then there's also examples in uh, some news outlets have said that he self-describes as a democratic socialist. But according to him, he's like, I, I never said that. I never said that. Now, by the way, I don't care. Because even if he did describe himself that way, okay, based. <laughs> like, it's a lot better than whatever the hell Connor Lamb is. And look at the way, look at what he says about himself there. So he says, well, I'm good. Why? Because I was a prosecutor and a Marine. This is like perfect democratic hack, liberal elite identity politics. Prosecutor is definitionally good. Marine is definitionally good. Democratic socialist is definitionally just, again, 1993 called, they want their lines of attack back. Okay. Um, and then the other thing he goes on to say is like, oh, Connor Lamb protected Social Security. A democratic socialist would not only protect Social Security, they would expand Social Security. It's just the ad is deeply hackish. So Fetterman saw this, his team saw this, and I guess they were asked about it, and they responded. Let me show you what that response is. With Democrats like Connor Lamb, who needs Republicans? Uh, Joe... Let me make this a little bigger. Joe Calvello, spokesman for Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's campaign for U.S. Senate, on Tuesday released the following statement after Connor Lamb's super PAC began airing negative attack ads on TV across Pennsylvania. Quote, Connor Lamb may be the only person in Pennsylvania who saw the trash the Republican side is putting on TV and said, yeah, we need more of that. Connor's super PAC ads aren't just demonstrably false. They're desperate and, frankly, sad. Connor hasn't been able to gain ground with Democrats. So he's decided to run like a Republican and use Fox News talking points to attack a fellow Democrat. Quote, but let's be clear, Connor Lamb's super PAC, which is run by D.C. insiders, is attacking John because he is not one of them. John doesn't spend his time backslapping with lobbyists and doing the bidding of rich donors like other politicians. They're attacking John because they know if he wins, they lose. They know when John gets to Washington, they won't be able to control him or buy his vote. They know John will truly fight for the people of Pennsylvania, and that terrifies them. Quote, a candidate whose only argument is that he's a winner should be running a much better campaign than this. The fact that Connor has a super PAC trying to save him is a frank admission that his campaign is failing to break through and that he's in trouble. God damn, son. Stop. He's already bleeding. He's already laying on the ground bleeding out. Stop hitting him, dog. You got him. You got him. That was a devastating response. The response is like, you're using right-wing lines of attack. Why? Well, because you're kind of right-wing yourself. And also, the real issue here is you're an elite insider schmoozing with lobbyists and doing the bidding of big corporations, and I'm not. I'm actually going to fight for the people. So you run some trash ad like this. Perfect response. Perfect response. And low-key, low-key, just between me and you, it was sort of a little wink and a nod that it's like, Maybe I'm not, maybe I don't describe as a democratic socialist, but are they my allies? I guess they are. Which again, based, the most liked politician in the country, national politician, is Bernie Sanders, and he self-describes as a democratic socialist. So there was no like, because what would, what would a, a less skilled and more vapid democratic politician do in this instance? They'd be, I'm not a democratic socialist! I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that! I don't want good things for people. I also want bad things for people, just like you. <laughs> but he didn't do that, did he? He went to the line of attack of like, you're an insider. You schmooze with lobbyists. You do the bidding of big corporations and billionaires. I don't. I represent the people. And so you're just going to use hack lines of attack like this. Perfect response. Now, 
this story has a happy ending. I mean, it's already, with that response, it's already devastating. It's already a great ending. Um, in the media markets where this ad was being run, run, it was pulled. And it was pulled for misinformation. Now, look, I don't know who's responsible for pulling it. I don't know, like, the mechanics of who made that decision. Um, but from what I read, it seemed to imply it was whoever's in charge of those media markets they were uncomfortable running it because they were like, this is just, this isn't correct. And so we don't want this running on our airways. Runs a dumb ad. It hurts him. Gets a rebuttal that destroys him. Remember, he's down big time Connor Lamb. And then the ad gets pulled and he runs away with his tail between his legs. I love it. I love it. Um, support John Fetterman. He's a million times better than Connor Lamb. Connor Lamb is an insider hack, total corporate Democrat, total smug prick. Um, Fetterman's politics are just better. He's a workers kind of Democrat. He could actually bring about positive change in many respects. And um, I think he handled this so-called scandal perfectly. All right, next. Here we go. So uh, one of the things that we've been tracking is how the media in this country, whenever there's a, a question about war, whenever there's a hint of conflict, what corporate media does is they immediately pivot to the right. They immediately go full neocon American exceptionalist where the world police and they start giving tough questions and applying pressure from the right, from a more hawkish direction against politicians. Now, our politicians are already freakishly hawkish. Look at the military-industrial complex. Look at the amount of money they take from Honeywell and Boeing and Raytheon, et cetera. And then look at how they do no good contracts and response. And we got endless amounts of tanks and fighter jets and all that stuff, right? And we sell weapons to the, some of the worst dictators in the world. But even given that, I think the media is more consistently hawkish than the politicians. And we've seen so many examples of that recently with Russia and Ukraine, with what's going on in Ukraine, with the war that Russia is waging in Ukraine. So here you have some corporate media hacks. We're going to run through this. Um, pressing Jen Psaki, basically begging for World War III. They're horny for World War III. They're like, why not do direct military engagement? A lot of bad stuff is happening. Let's take a look. military war? Tell me more and the national security of the United States uh, and the American people. 
and that is not to go to war with Russia. It is to do everything in our power uh, to hold them accountable, to support efforts through international systems to do exactly that, and to provide military assistance, security assistance, and support to the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government. That's exactly what we're doing. But it is not in our interest or in the interest of the American people for us to be in a war with uh, look, I'm not a fan of Jen Psaki. She has West-wing brain. She's a corporate Democrat in her own right. Uh, she's about to ditch this job, go get a cushy MSNBC gig that I'm sure is going to pay her millions of dollars. I'm not a fan of her. But her answer there was spot on. This smug prick who has the inability, forget the inability to play chess. Homeboy isn't even playing checkers. I don't understand. There's atrocities happening. There's war crimes happening. I mean, look at what happened in, in Bucha. Shouldn't we do a military response against Russia uh, and lead the world and use, like, our NATO allies in order to do that? You're casually asking, please, sir, can I have a crumb of World War III? Can I have a crumb of nuclear annihilation, sir? How do you not realize this is something that is off the table? To not take this off the table means you have a death wish. I mean, because we've been talking about how everything's spiraling out of control, right? And there's a tit-for-tat escalation and all that stuff. What you're calling for is like the final step where it is now fully out of control. What is the U.S. and NATO attack Russia and there's no retaliation? Is that what you expect to happen? Is that what you expect to happen? And even if he says yes to that, well, what are the odds that we're talking about here? What are we talking about? There's got to be, what, over a 60 or 70% chance there's some response in kind? I mean, our fucking fingers are like a millimeter away from the red button. And he's like, I don't get it. Why don't you just press the red button? Why don't we do direct? Now, by the way, so he's kind of direct with it there. Maybe he couches it a touch. But there are others who aren't even couching it. So let me show you this next headline. This is from a few days ago. This is in... The Hill, MSNBC's Ali Belshi calls for NATO's direct military involvement against Russia. Direct military involvement. Have all of you lost your fucking minds? Guys, this isn't like Iraq. This isn't like Afghanistan. Which, by the way, those were bad enough. Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal on your planet. Take your heads out of your rectums, for the love of God. And they have, like, they have a phenomenally powerful position. When mainstream media all gets on the same page and they hammer stuff home, it tends to move poles. Now, by the way, I'm not downplaying the horrific atrocities and war crimes committed by Russia. Russia did an illegal invasion of Ukraine. Putin has imperial ambitions. There's a shitload of natural gas that they found off the coast of Crimea in 2012, and then, oh, would you look at that? Putin takes it in 2014. I wonder if those things are related. Same thing, we now know in eastern Ukraine and in western Ukraine, there's a tremendous amount of natural gas, which could really develop Ukraine further and make them a major player. That threatens Russia. Russia's a petrostate. They want that natural gas. This isn't to downplay in any way, shape, or form what Vladimir Putin is doing. It's to say this is not on the table because the world shouldn't be destroyed over this dispute. Now, by the way, and this is the part that drives me fucking crazy, 
Look at what the U.S. is doing in Yemen right now. Right now. Now, in many ways, that's even worse because we're responsible for it, at least partly responsible for it. There's been hundreds of thousands of deaths of civilians in Yemen. That is all funded by and backed by the United States. It's our weapons going to our top ally, Saudi Arabia, as they wantonly massacre women, children, innocent civilians. They've done bombing campaigns on mosques and hospitals and open-air markets. They've blockaded the country, and they're starving the country, all because the Houthis took over in Yemen. And so they say, oh, those are Shia Houthis. We can't have them in power. They're an enemy of ours. So now they're waging a genocide in the country to try to put a Sunni government friendly, uh, friendly to Saudi Arabia back in there and friendly to the West back in there. That's what they're trying to do. We are directly engaged in supporting a genocide, and none of these idiots have ever sat there and been consistent with their logic and said, look, man, shit, how can we not, do, how can we not bomb Saudi Arabia immediately to protect the Yemeni babies. Look at all the Yemeni babies that are dying. Look at all the women and children who are dying. Look at all the corpses. This is a genocide. These are war crimes. These are atrocities. We're supposed to be the world police. We're supposed to be better than that. Why are we not bombing Saudi Arabia to stop them? Why are we not going after them? If they were being consistent in their logic and their worldview, they would have called for direct military engagement against Saudi Arabia. But they're not consistent. They're not consistent at all. And for them, they're just getting dragged around by their heartstrings. Whoever, who's our official enemy? Well, we can directly military engage our official enemies, even if they have nuclear weapons. But crimes that are equally as bad, if not worse, if they're our allies, we won't even fucking talk about it. We won't even say, hey, maybe we shouldn't give Saudi Arabia weapons. Or, hey, uh, maybe we should sanction Saudi Arabia. They're not even engaging in those conversations. A much lower degree of escalation with Saudi Arabia to stop a genocide, they won't even entertain that. It's just out of sight, out of mind, not going to talk about it because it doesn't fit the narrative. Do you understand how ludicrous this entire conversation is? Do you understand that? We have blood on our hands over Yemen. They won't even fucking talk about it. Never mind, be consistent with their standard and their ideology and say, maybe we should militarily attack Saudi Arabia. Now, I don't want to militarily attack Saudi Arabia. I would like to cut off the weapons to them. Sure. I would like to have a conversation about maybe kicking them off the UN Human Rights Council. Sure. Maybe even have a conversation about sanctioning them. Sure. But I'm consistent. Those are things I'd like to do, not only with Saudi Arabia, with Russia over what's going on in Ukraine. But what I'm taking off the table for sure is World War III because I don't have a fucking cinder block where my brain is supposed to be, you absolute clowns. And they are misleading the public day in and day out and not giving you an accurate picture of the world. They're not. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. This isn't to downplay what Russia is doing. It's to say World War III should be off the table for anybody with a functioning brain. Clearly, these people don't have functioning brains, and they're not even consistent in their we-should-be-the-world-police ideology. All right, next. 
So Christian Smalls, the Amazon labor union president, um, was asked pretty directly in an interview with Mehdi Hassan here uh, about, hey, are you frustrated that Democratic politicians, most of them are not supporting you? None of them showed up uh, when you need them beforehand. Um, does that frustrate you with how gone they are on the issue of labor, labor politics in many respects? And he gives an answer that pretty much directly speaks to the little spat that happened on Twitter between uh, AOC and Crystal Ball. Let's take a look and then we'll react. Democrats like to say they are the party of the underdog, the party of labor, of workers. And yet the vast majority of elected Democrats in Congress, last time I checked, haven't said a word about your victory. How disappointed are you in the Democratic Party when it comes to the issue of labor rights? Well, you know, right now, uh, there's a lot of buzz on, online about, you know, who supported who did. And um, I want to clear the air on that. You know, um, you know they, they didn't support us, and that's just uh, a fact. You know, I know who was here on the ground with me every day. I know who came out to support us at our rallies, and it wasn't them. And it's not just them. It's, uh, it's a lot more people that are out there that uh, obviously didn't show up for, for these workers here in Staten Island, and it's a shame. That, you know, they wait until, you know, we get to an election, we actually are victorious to come out and show their support, something that they could have done 11 months ago when this campaign first started. Um, so I'm just hoping that if they can redeem themselves, you know, this, this is a marathon. Um, I don't have any ill will towards any of them. I just want them to do right by their constituents. We're here in New York. Doesn't matter what district you come from. Doesn't matter what district this building is in. These are all New Yorkers traveling from all boroughs. I know 8,300 of them. I know where they live. And I can tell you they absolutely uh, represent, um, these, you know, the politicians that they elected. So, you know, they all need to step up, and I'm talking to every last one of them. They all need to step up and make sure that they are taking care of these people. Again, that's a perfect answer. He said, quote, they didn't support us. That's just a fact. Then he says, and I love this part, because this is what it's all about, man. And this is what the whole thing was with Crystal and AOC. Quote, I'm just hoping they can redeem themselves. I don't have any ill will towards them. That's what it's about. And you know he's talking about AOC and probably Mondaire Jones as well. Um, he says it doesn't matter what district they come from. Because Christian Smalls knows a lot of people who work at that facility, who commute from AOC's district, from Mondaire Jones' district. Um, that's it, man. That's all it's about. So Crystal's vindicated in the back and forth. I know I was with Crystal when all this was going down. And I can tell you, in no uncertain terms, the thing that frustrated her is Christian Smalls told us she said she was going to show up, and then she didn't show up. And she left them high and dry. And then when it looked like the Amazon labor union was winning, then she jumps in front of the parade and does some, oh, I'm so happy about this shit. And Crystal wanted a record to show, hey, you weren't there when it mattered. But more importantly, the reason for this quote-unquote call-out, is simply to say, for the love of God, show up the next time. So understand, there, okay, there are types of criticisms where it's like, I'm just trying to tear you down, and you are just my enemy, and you're totally irredeemable in every way, shape, and form. Some criticisms go that path. Those criticisms are unreasonable, and they're hackish, and they're dumb. This was not that. This was exactly what Christian Smalls is saying here. Christian Smalls is saying, I'm just hoping they can redeem themselves. I don't have any ill will towards any of them. 
yeah, you let us down this time, but you know what? Maybe the next time you don't let us down, and maybe you help us for realsies. Now, if you don't think that's reasonable, I don't know what to tell you. I think you're being incredibly obstinate and rigid and silly, and you're refusing to engage in even the most tepid, constructive type of criticism. That's the only way to make these politicians better, is to let them know, hey, look, you sort of messed up here, but you can make up for it. So let's start the whole making up for it thing. And again, this is their job, man. This is their job. Represent your constituents. Represent workers. And look, swung and they missed. But it, it's not, to be fair, it's not like in other contexts that these politicians, Mondier Jones, AOC, and others, haven't helped unions. They have. They ha- that's a fact. That's a fact. So that matters. Like all the nuance matters, which is why it stung when they didn't help. Now, again, my, and this is just speculation, so take it for what it's worth, but my guess was, um, and Crystal originally floated this theory, I want to give her credit for it, but even she's not 100% on it, that um, what happened is with a lot of these progressive Democrats, they were told by their staffers and or by other unions, more established unions, look, this thing is a joke. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to implode. It's going to be embarrassing. You don't want to throw your weight behind them because then they lose and then you look silly and it brings down your profile. Uh, I think that's probably part of what happened. But if that is the case, and we don't know, again, to be clear, but if that is the case, what I would say to AOC and what I would say to all the progressive Democrats is, you guys were all long shots too. And people never gave you the time of day and never gave you a chance until you fucking won. So you know what that feels like. So you should know better and to lead with your heart. Because you know what? Even if, let's say it did go up in flames and they lost abysmally and they only got like 20% of the vote or some shit. At least you tried to do the right thing. Like, you can sleep a hell of a lot better at night if that's the case. You'll feel a lot better if that's the case. But no, I think it's brand management is what I think it is. And um, nobody elected these people to be, like, self-protective plotters. We elected you to try to push relentlessly for the right things, regardless of the consequences. So, and by the way, even if it did go up in flames and you had the progressive Democrats on the ground helping it, nobody would really care. <laughs> like, nobody would, nobody would attack them or, like, you know, Politico or whatever wouldn't write in articles, see how ineffective they are, they couldn't get this across the finish line. And even if they did, who cares? <laughs> like, they'd be goofy and wrong and dumb, and then we'd come out there and attack Politico, for saying, like, look, they're leading with principle, and this is what they think is the right thing. So even if they lost, whatever, they did the right thing. Anyway, I'm, I'm going on and on here. Um, I view that as total vindication in the back and forth. Understand, even though there are two prominent personalities involved here, Congresswoman AOC and Crystal Ball, ultimately this is not about them. It's about the union. It's about Chris Smalls. It's about the workers, and it's about the future of getting involved in these fights as much as humanly possible, especially if you're an elected official. I'm super proud of the fact we had Chris Smalls on before the victory, when they were doing the the union drive and organizing. I'm very proud of that fact. Proud of Crystal for having Chris Smalls on breaking points a bunch of times before it. Point is, do right by them 
next time and keep doing right by them. And then you know what? At the end of the day, the original fuck-up will be water under the bridge, okay? So there it is, total vindication. Christian Smalls is right, and he handled that perfectly because even he said right there, quote, I'm just hoping they can redeem themselves. I don't have any ill will towards any of them. Indeed. So just do the right thing now. All right, next. All right, so I have an update for everybody in regards to student loan debt. Let me go ahead and show you. This is from the AP. Zeke Miller says, U.S. official says White House to extend pandemic pause on student loan repayments through August 31st. So um, this is what we like to call in the business a half measure. So is it better than nothing? Is it better than the student loan debt repayment restarting in May? Yes, it is. Um, But what, you're adding like three months to it and that's it? I think this perfectly demonstrates the problem with the Democratic Party and Democratic leadership. Um, They genuinely don't have in them for ideological reasons and probably for corruption reasons as well, anything that's big and bold and transformational. Look, I told you, I actually predicted this. I told you guys possible, what's likely to happen is either they do nothing and they start the repayment in May or they postpone it again or, and this would probably be the best case scenario for these clowns, is they eliminate like $10,000 worth of student loan debt each even though there were times that they all said, uh, we're going to eliminate student loan debt, and then Biden at times said, I'm going to eliminate 50,000 worth of student loan debt. My guess was they'll they'll either start the repayment in May, postpone it again, or um, do $10,000. And so what we got here is that exact middle ground. We got the, we're going to postpone it. And again, they're only postponing it a few months. I mean, I guess it's a tiny crumb of good news for the people who owe the student loan debt who now get few more months to try to get their shit together to find money they don't have to pay it off. But in reality, again, this is nothing. And this is not going to fucking, like, what do you think? This is going to be the big thing that uh, helps the American people but also gets you over the finish line in the midterms? It's a joke. It's a joke. I mean, the real answer is you got to abolish it. you got to eliminate it. We have over, you know, what is it, $1.7 trillion worth of student loan debt that's holding back an entire generation and you want to let them continue to struggle, they go out into the real world way behind the eight ball, they can't pay this shit off, why shouldn't college work exactly like high school works? You have public high school in this country, you go to high school, then you get out and nobody owes a penny. It's just paid for via tax dollars. Why shouldn't it work like that for college as well? And today, a college degree is like a high school degree used to be. So it's really just keeping par with the way it used to be. But no. But no, they can't do it. So, look, I'm trying to be fair in this segment. I'm trying to say, like, okay, it's good they extended it. It's better than doing nothing. It is. That's true. But you can't help but roll your eyes, right? Because for the love of God, do something good for once. When was, uh, excuse me, when was Biden's approval rating the highest? When he cut $1,400 checks. Now, even that was a half measure because he originally said 2000 They needed some weaselly math shit where he was like, well, you already got 600 from Trump, so now I'm going to do 1400 to make a 2000 total. 
But still, his approval rating was 54% at the time because people were like, oh, you are materially improving my life. I enjoy this. Thank you, sir. And now, you know, temporarily postponing it. If you, if you were to eliminate the student loan debt, that'd be a massive surge in popularity. It would. Honestly, the best, I think the best we can hope for, and I, I would love it if I'm proven wrong. I think the best we can hope for is yet another extension or at some point $10,000 in, in reduction or maybe $5,000 in reduction. I think that's the furthest that they're willing to go. And this is, it shows you everything wrong with democratic leadership. It does. They just don't, they have a total inability to think big. Everybody who wrote those articles comparing FDR to uh, Joe Biden or Joe Biden FDR, they need to be launched into the sun because FDR wouldn't piss on Joe Biden if he was on fire. I mean, this guy is, he's just another Bill Clinton. He's, or he's another Barack Obama. It's, they're all that same vein, that triangulation, that new Democrat stuff, that uh, centrism or even right-wing Democratic positions. It's just, it's, it's a joke. So they extended it, good, but if this is it, it really will be a historic bloodbath in the midterm elections. And think of all the people that they can't fucking afford it. We've read polls. These students can't afford to, to do the repayment. They just can't afford it. They don't have the money. I guess they would say, well, that's not my problem. That's their problem. Okay. All right. We got it. Thanks for your non-help. All right, let me do one more, then I'll take a quick break. So I have an article here from Mediate that I want to show all of you. Uh, this is about Democratic strategists realizing the obvious, that Democrats are going to get killed in the midterms. So let's go ahead and take a look here. Headline is, Democratic strategists speak out ahead of midterms. We're going to get slaughtered in November. So let me give you um, the specifics of the article here. They say, Worried about not only losing a majority in the House, but also in the Senate, top strategists spoke of the issue, issues Democrats face in convincing Americans to turn out and vote for them in the fall. Bill Galston, who advised former President Bill Clinton, okay, you're going to see why this article's a little off, said Biden's approval numbers can only go so high right now. Quote, my hypothesis is that unless and until inflation comes down appreciably, that there's going to be a ceiling on his job approval that's a lot lower than the White House wants it to be, Galston said. Gallup senior editor Jeff Jones concurred, quote, high gas prices are one of the biggest anchors on presidential approval, Jones said. Biden's approval rating is hovering at around 40%. The Real Clear Politics average shows 41% approve of Biden's job performance, while 53.8% disapprove. The Biden administration has repeatedly attempted to attribute pain at the pump to Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. There was a consensus among experts that the message is not helping the president with voters, quote, I'm not shocked at all by the numbers because they look exactly what normal looks like, said Jim Kessler, who is executive VP for policy at the think tank Third Way. These are the most corporate of the corporate Democrats. Quote, the question is, given a lot of good news in the country, the jobs numbers, the businesses opening, the masks are off, the Russians are in full panic, America is astride the top of the world, can we do better? Can we do better than normal? And I think the disappointment right now is we're not. Let me give you the next slide here. Hold on, it's glitching for me. 
Come on. All right, hold on. Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. Well, this is not good. I have to do a Control-Alt job on this. Okay, hold on. Hold on. may have just gotten under control. We shall see in a second. There we go. Okay. One strategist who was not named attempted to stamp out any hope Democrats will be able to fend off Republicans at the polls later this year. Quote, it's bad. A person only described as a Democratic strategist said, you have an energy crisis that's paralyzing and inflation is at a 40-year high and we're heading into a recession. The problem is simple. The American people have lost confidence in him. Everyone needs to come to terms with the reality that we're going to get slaughtered in November, the Democratic strategist added. That's a fact. Polling has gotten worse, not better. It's indicative of the fact that people have lost confidence in his leadership. There's nothing they're going to be able to do. Okay, that last line is one of the biggest problems in this article. There's nothing they're going to be able to do, meaning the Democrats are doomed no matter what, as if it's written in the laws of nature and you can't actually do policy changes that would improve your chances? So this is an article where on the overall point, they're mostly correct, except for that last line I just talked about, but in the specifics, they're actually way off. So look at what they say the main problems are. They talk about, well, inflation is the main problem and high gas prices are the main problem. And so unless you get those under control, you're screwed. Now, here's why that's not correct. Let's say inflation gets under control. Let's say the high gas prices get under control. Let's say those numbers actually totally flip and they're just flat good. You have very, very minimal inflation. You have um, gas prices that get down to, I don't know, let's say $2.10 a gallon. Let's go nuts, okay? Even in that situation, he's not going to get a very large bump. Maybe he'll get a two, three-point bump or something like that. So what they're saying is, hey, things are bad, but if we return to the status quo, then it'll look good for you. That's the gist of the argument. And, of course, that last line also contradicts that because the last line is like, well, there's nothing they can do at all. So here's the reality. The, again, this is third way we're talking about here. They are the most corporate of the corporate Democrats. They're funded by every giant corporation. They're... they're that's a rotten organization to its core. The whole point of, of Third Way is to make Democrats more like Republicans. Here's the reality, and not a single word is in this article about this. If you want to have a chance in the midterms, and if you want to genuinely improve the lives of the American people, do good policy that would meet those goals and get us to those ends. So in other words, some provisions of Build Back Better have to pass. If you do universal pre-K, if you do elder care, if you extend the child tax credit, if you lower prescription drug prices, those are things that would materially improve lives and people would be like, oh, okay, well, now I like the president more. You get a much bigger bump from getting some of those policies through than you would if you just get inflation under control and get gas prices under control. By the way, I'm not downplaying that, of course, it would be a good thing if you get inflation under control, you get gas prices under control. But even when we had decent inflation numbers, and even when we had gas prices that were under control, I mean, under Trump, 
we had better inflation numbers, and we had gas that was more under control with the price. Does that mean it's like, oh, well, well, that's a recipe for victory? No, Trump lost in 2020. So that's obviously not the silver bullet. That just gets us back to the status quo, and that's the problem with these people. They're status quo humpers. Just give me status quo, and then you'll have your best chance. No, we need to go way above and beyond the status quo. We need to do big, bold, universal programs. Biden could eliminate student loan debt with the stroke of a pen. That would be huge. That would definitely give him at least a five-point bump. He could legalize marijuana with the stroke of a pen and free all the nonviolent drug offenders. That also would give him a bump in the polls. That's a 70% issue in the country. So that's what annoys me about this article. They're, they're correct on the main point. Democrats are going to get slaughtered in the midterms. At, at, that point, at this point, it's almost empirical now because they're not going to do any of the things that they need to do in order to win. So... They're right on the main point. They're going to get slaughtered. They're totally wrong in the specifics of that diagnosis because all they talk about is inflation and all they talk about is high gas prices. Even if we got those things under control, that's not enough. That's not enough. There's, okay, there's a reason why FDR was reelected. He, he won four times he won the presidency. Four. They came up with term limits in order to try to make it so the Republicans had a chance because they were like, we'll never beat these people. They're too good. Americans got a tiny little taste of social democracy, and they lost it. And they were like, this is all we want. So this is a guy who was dealt a much more difficult hand. I mean, granted, Biden had a pandemic. I'm not downplaying that. But Homeboy was there during the Great Depression, and he turned lemons into lemonade. He really did. Not to say everything he did was good. Of course not. The Japanese internment, horrendous. But in terms of the economic approach, he turned lemons into lemonade. Biden is sitting on his hands, doing Dickie McGee's acts to try to revolutionize the country, reform the country in a serious way with bold universal programs. For the love of God, it, it, it doesn't take much, dog. It doesn't take much. Universal pre-K, elder care, uh, extended child tax credit, lowering prescription drug prices. Um, I mean, obviously, a universal health care system would be amazing, some sort of recurring check, $1,000 a month, $2,000 a month, would be amazing. Eliminating student loan debt, legalizing marijuana. There's so many policies that they could do. If they just go big on, like, one or two of them and then brag about it till the end of time and the programs work, right, that's how you have a chance. But, that look, what I'm saying is so not in the conversation in the Oval Office that it's laughable. People will look at me like I'm insane for saying these things in the White House. Because all the, the conventional wisdom is everything you just heard there. The conventional wisdom is you were too big and too bold, and so you've got to slow down and do nothing, and then maybe that'll help you because you gave in to the left, and you're just representing AOC and the crazy types, and you, you were too ambitious. That, I'm serious. That's some of the conventional wisdom in the White House. And the other conventional wisdom is like you just heard here. Just get inflation under control. Just get the gas price under control. So they're just playing a whack-a-mole to try to get back to the status quo, which already sucked balls. So, pathetic. But it's true. that Even the third way people know they're going to get slaughtered in the midterms, it's just they misdiagnose the reasons as to why, and of course they don't understand the solutions at all because they're corporate hacks in their own respect. But if they actually mustered the will and the ability to do those things I just said, some of those policies, they'd have a fighting chance. They absolutely would but I don't trust that they're going to do it. And so they're resigned to sort of just losing or, you know, 
No, that's it. They're, they're just resigned to losing. <laughs> so there you have it. Pathetic, terrible. Um, it's the, the consensus now because it's real as a heart attack. But Hail Mary pastime, and it uh, doesn't look like there's any hope of that happening. All right, y'all. Okay, let's uh, take a quick break. When we get back, Biden goes after Fox News in a gangster-ass way. Stay right there, y'all.
We are back. Let's keep it going in this beach. So President Joe Biden, uh, there's a new book that came out, and they talk about how he said some pretty harsh things about Fox News behind the scenes. So let's go ahead and take a look here. This is in Mediaite. Joe Biden privately considers Fox News as one of the most destructive forces in the nation per report. Wow. So here's the, uh, the body of the article. CNN's Brian Stelter obtained a preview of This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future, a book they've co-authored for release in May. Part of the book explores the Biden administration's reaction to what is described as Fox News' torrent of anti-Biden programming, stoking skepticism about vaccines, and disseminating wild conspiracy theories about the January 6th attack. Stelter reports, according to the book, Biden told an unnamed associate in mid-2021 that Murdoch was the most dangerous man in the world. The description comes many chapters into This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future, which comes out in May. The book describes Fox as a torrent of anti-Biden programming, stoking skepticism about the vaccines and disseminating wild conspiracy theories about the January 6th attack. Many Biden allies have denounced Fox for those reasons and have blamed Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, the company's CEO, for enabling hosts like Tucker Carlson. Okay. Um, So a few things to say about this. The first one is, uh, look, he's not wrong. Fox News is is horrendous. (laughs) Fox Fox News is um, a stain on the country. If you guys remember, well, many of you probably don't remember this, but Fox News was during the lead-up to the Iraq War and during the Iraq War, they were the biggest cheerleaders for it. They would denounce anybody who was against it uh, like they're a traitor, you know, like they're treasonous. And um, they would do the old conflation of supporting the troops with supporting the war. So in order to, quote-unquote, support the troops, you had to support the war. Um, They lied relentlessly, or at the very least, they just misled people based on faulty Uh, information. And that alone, building the war fever is as condemnable as it gets. And even if the rest of their record was spot free and they were wrong on that, it's still like, Jesus Christ, you know, you guys are are TFG. They're just a rank propaganda outlet. They do Republican Party propaganda. But the other thing I'd say to Biden is like, did you really expect anything different? And the hilarious answer is he actually did. Biden actually did expect something different because he very famously said, as soon as Trump is gone, the fever will break among Republicans and they'll be more reasonable. Why on earth would you think that? You were vice president under Obama. Under Obama, they broke the filibuster record. They obstructed like nobody's business. They tried to repeal Obamacare 70 times. On what planet did you think all of a sudden Mitch McConnell is going to be like, yeah, Joe Biden, get through whatever you want in the Senate, or that House Republicans would be on your side or some shit, or even some small percentage of them, they hate you. They despise you. So it's just, I don't know, it just strikes me as so incredibly um, naive 
on Biden's part to ever think that these people would give him a pass or work with him or whatever. Put America first and, you know, be bipartisan for the sake of everybody. No, of course not. So, look, he's right about um, Fox News. But the also thing is, interestingly, he brings up, I think he brings up Tucker. I don't think he brought up Hannity. Did he bring up Hannity? I'm not going to go back and check, but um, I don't know. Why would Hannity get a pass? Now, look, it's possible he said things about Hannity, too, so I don't want to act like he didn't, but he's right on the overall point. They're a state on the country, um, but here's what he's missing as well. This idea that, like, well, Fox News is is really bad, but CNN and MSNBC, on the other hand, they're good. Like, now, he didn't, he didn't say they're good. He didn't say it. But he's saving his ire for Fox News only. Now, I would agree, if you say Fox News is the worst, I agree with that. But CNN and MSNBC are also preposterously horrendous. I mean, you talk about conspiracy theories around January 6th. True, Fox News are spreading them. One American News and... Uh, Newsmax are spreading them way worse, but then on the CNN and MSNBC side, they went all in on Russiagate. They genuinely thought James Comey was going to drag uh, Trump out of the White House in handcuffs, and that there was going to be some grand plot uncovered of Trump being Putin's puppet. At the same time, Trump was arming neo-Nazis in Ukraine to be a bulwark against Russia and to fight Russia, and we had NATO troops on uh, Russia's border, and he killed the Keystone, not, excuse me, not Keystone XL pipeline. He's in favor of the Keystone XL pipeline. He killed the North Stream 2 pipeline, which Russia wanted, Russia and Germany wanted. So they did conspiracy theories nonstop as well. To only bring up Fox News in this context when we, I mean, the huge scandal around Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo and CNN. I mean, at the same time that Andrew Cuomo was killing grandma by putting her back into the nursing home when she had COVID, so COVID ripped through the nursing homes. He was getting these, uh, you know, puff pieces on CNN, and he was coming on his brother's show where they would joke around and talk about mom's spaghetti and hold giant Q-tips for no apparent reason, and where Chris Cuomo would say to Andrew Cuomo, I think you're the best governor in the country. I mean, deeply corrupt, me tooing about 17,000 people, killing grandma, hiding the fact that they used the wrong material for a bridge, which is dangerous. All these scandals... Nowhere to be seen. And CNN was sucking off Andrew Cuomo on the regular. Total journalistic malpractice to have the brother talk to his other brother and act like he's wonderful and not talk about any of the flaws and the downfalls. And the second those flaws come out, all of a sudden he's like, I can't talk about this because I'm biased. Well, you shouldn't have. You were also biased when you were sucking him off daily. Shouldn't have talked to him then either. So this idea of like, well, Fox News is bad, and then the others get sort of a pass in the sense that you don't throw them under the bus? It's sad. It's sad. And also, by the way, another reason Joe Biden should understand that the others are terrible, too. What happened when he pulled out of Afghanistan? The entire media turned on him. CNN and MSNBC were some of the worst. They were acting like the worst thing Biden ever did was end a war. That was the best thing he ever did. And they acted like the sky was falling, and they acted like the duh position was we should stay there indefinitely. I mean, just total pawns and stooges of the military-industrial complex. That's how they acted. That's how they acted. And so I hope he has some hatred for them as well. But, yeah, I mean, Biden thinking Fox News is terrible. Correct. Good. Um, 
naive to ever think they wouldn't be. And also, I hope he has some hatred for the rest of mainstream media. But look, maybe the reason why they would get a pass in his mind in so far as they do is because they did really help make him president, didn't they? They didn't like him for a long time. But then as soon as it was obvious it was going to be Bernie or Biden, they went after Bernie viciously, just like the other establishment Democrats did. And um, they really were cheerleading him in that final stretch when Biden started winning primaries. They started cheerleading Biden. And so maybe he still thinks of that, which is why he wouldn't dislike them much at all. So I don't know. But anyway, there you have it. Um, I mean, those are some strong words from Biden when he says Joe Biden privately considers Fox News, quote, one of the most destructive forces in America. I mean, it's true. Think about think about how much the Fox News propaganda has impacted like 30, 40 percent of the country. I mean, Fox News has made it so that a lot of people in this country view Democrats not just as wrong or, or liberals or lefties, not just as wrong, but like evil and an existential threat to the nation. That is what Fox News has done. They've made it so that like hyper rigid partisanship and tribalism and hatred of the other side tears us apart. Now, CNN and MSNBC do the mirror image of that with Republicans, but I like, I like the way uh, Crystal puts it and what she says about breaking points. It's like, let's try to make it so the people hate each other less, less and hate the elites more. I love that. I love that. Because all these networks do is highlight our differences and make the other out to be the enemy. And that has terrible consequences. You do that plus a bunch of sensationalism bullshit, and it's a recipe for people with brainworms, you know, who are incapable of really addressing problems in a serious way. So now I don't want to go too far, you know, like, it's not the people who are the problem. It really is the elites who are the problem. But what Fox News does and what the other networks do is they just – they talk about the culture war all day, and they make Democrats hate Republicans, and Republicans hate Democrats, and lefties hate conservatives, and conservatives hate, conservatives hate lefties. And they, it's a divide and conquer. They keep us divided. So it's not good. It's not good. So, but anyway, Biden's right on the Fox News thing. I just wish he also criticized CNN and MSNBC. And um, I do think he was naive to ever think there was any hope for them because they're just a propaganda outlet for the Republican Party. That's all they've ever been. Okay, next. So you guys can see today I'm wearing my um, Starbucks Union shirt. This is an awesome shirt. Uh, I love it. And uh, we're going to talk, unfortunately, about a story that's gaming, game, gaming, gaining steam now, or gaining speed now. Why am I unable to? I fucking host a talk show, and I don't know how to talk. It's so pathetic. Anyway, um, More Perfect Union yet again is here with some phenomenal reporting about what's happening in the country. You have all these um, Starbucks around the country falling like dominoes, and they're unionizing one after the other. And that's a glorious thing. That's a wonderful thing. It's how workers get uh, better pay, more benefits. Uh, It's a way to try to shift the balance of power from just being an authoritarian dictatorship with management saying and doing and getting whatever they want and the workers just following along like little puppy dogs. So 
But now Starbucks has decided we're going to go scorched earth. We're going to go scorched earth, and we're going to do what they literally call a, quote, shock and awe campaign where they're just breaking laws left and right now in attempts to quell the rise of the union. So let's take a look. computer, y'all. We got a freaked out computer. Oh. <laughs> going well over here, guys. Oh, let's go back to where we were. 
that she was defending Layla and shutting down the store for the day. For violation, Layla had texted her direct supervisor. According to an NLRB investigation, the manager began enforcing a previously unenforced rule prohibiting employees from communicating with supervisors by text message. Layla had texted her boss at least 12 times before this incident without any problems, but suddenly she was being suspended for it. Was Layla texting something inappropriate to her boss? No, she was communicating about the levels of staffing in the store. Just a few days before targeting Layla, Starbucks set its sights on another employee in the Phoenix store, Alyssa Sanchez. Sanchez was forced to quit because the company cut her hours. The NLRB determined this action was taken because Alyssa was supportive of the union and an ally of Layla. A little over a month later, in March, More Perfect Union published Layla's recorded footage of the conversation she had with her supervisor back in late January. We spoke with one of her coworkers, Sophia Lugo, who defended Layla's work ethic. Lugo had her hours drastically reduced and was forced to quit the store. Three Starbucks employees, one store in Phoenix, all targeted by upper management for union activity. Wow. So uh, they're not playing around anymore. So what happened was the previous CEO was, he wasn't pro-union, but he was clearly, he took a more hands-off approach. And if the employees wanted to unionize, he followed the law more and allowed them to uh, do what is their constitutional right. Well, Howard Schultz was a union buster. He was the former CEO of Starbucks. Now they're bringing back in Howard Schultz. And they're doing that in order for him to union bust. So what you saw there is pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear what's going on. But I actually have further proof for you because here's Howard Schultz at a recent Starbucks event. And look at what he says about the union. Now, here's where it gets a little sensitive because I've been coached a little bit. But I do want to talking about something pretty serious. We can't ignore what is happening in the country as it relates to companies throughout the country being assaulted in many ways by the threat of unionization. Companies being assaulted by the threat of unionization. He also goes on to say that some outside organization is trying to take our workers. Now, you heard him say there, too, I've been coached a little bit. What's he saying? He's saying, I've been told not to go all in with my true feelings about the unions, because if I tell you those things, I might be admitting to crimes. That is uh, the implication of, I've been coached a little bit on this. That's what that means. It means if I really speak my mind fully on this, I might just openly be admitting to breaking the law, and so I can't do that. So... Even with me reeling it in, I'm going to say that we're being assaulted by unionization. Assaulted by unionization? No, unionization is the workers collectively bargaining with management to get some better conditions. That's all it is. It's shifting the balance of power away from an authoritarian dictatorship where anything goes if management says it or the owners say it. Even with him being coached, he can't help but show his disdain for unions. Look, it's all out there in the open. So what's my, my main point here for all the Starbucks workers and for the union? And I hope some of them are, are watching this. And if you are watching this and you're part of the Starbucks union, share this with everybody in the union that you know and tell them to share it with everybody in the union that, that they know. What did we just see with Amazon? We just saw Chris Smalls win. And he won without any major union backing. He did it on his own in an independent way. 
And they succeeded because they had direct communication with other workers. They all know each other. They all respect each other. They navigated the internal office politics and who's with what clique and who do they know and who are they close with and how can we basically reach out to everybody and then stand in solidarity together. But what they did is they were ballsy. And so there were instances of them going into Amazon meetings that they weren't invited to and then they get kicked out. And what happened was when Amazon tried to go scorched earth against them, remember they were, call, he was, they were calling Chris Smalls inarticulate and they wanted to make him the face of it and they thought he was a joke. The more Amazon got aggressive against them, the more the workers circled the wagons around each other and stood in solidarity. So Starbucks doing this is terrible because of the immediate impact and all these people getting fired. But also, it is an opportunity for you guys to stand in solidarity, have spines of steel, and go right back at them with that same kind of mentality. You guys should storm meetings that you're not invited to. You guys should use the media relentlessly. You guys can highlight all the bad things that Starbucks is doing and use that to recruit further among the workers, to show them, look, it's them versus us. And so... My main point here is do not back down. Do not be intimidated by these union-busting tactics. You go back at them with the same energy that they came at you. And the reason why I'm confident in saying this is because we just saw it work with the Amazon labor union. We just saw it work. Now, Amazon's done. They're not going to stop. They're not going to lay down and take it. They're also going to fight back to and get ugly. But the only way for the labor union to win is by being smart and tactical. By navigating internal office politics, and by, by you use the media and you stay on the office, you're going to win. You're going to win. And look at all these grotesque actions already being taken by Starbucks. Use this as fuel. In other, in other words, use it to feed the opposite of what they want it to feed. They want this to make people disengage. They want this to make the union back down more, to take a more hands-off approach, to not rock the boat too much. No, you need to rock the boat more now. That's what you have to do. And so that's my advice to you guys. Stay strong um, and don't stop fighting. Because what this means is they are desperate. They are desperate. They're on the ropes. So keep going forward and uh, it'll all work out. And you have an ally in this show. You have an ally, you know, with breaking points and with others. And, um, you know, we'll do whatever we can in order to help. But highlighting the scumbag that is the CEO is just the beginning. Okay. Next. All right. Let's continue. So I have a really, really interesting new poll to share with you guys. Um, it's a poll on the most and least trusted names in news. Let's go ahead and throw that first chart up. This one uh, makes my day because it's too perfect. Americans view the Weather Channel, the BBC and PBS, as the most trusted or as the most trustworthy media organizations. So how trustworthy do you rate the news reporter by the following? And then so the Weather Channel is plus 41. I love that because the Weather Channel has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with anything other than the weather. And they're viewed as the most trustworthy. You want to know why? Because they are the most trustworthy. The Weather Channel is based as fuck. 
Sometimes I sit there and watch it for like an hour and a half or two hours like I'm 89 years old. And you know what? It's glorious. I don't regret a minute of it. I don't regret watching any of those shows on tornadoes or extreme weather. I don't regret just figuring out what the fucking temperature is in Mesa, Arizona. It's something calming and soothing about the Weather Channel. We love the Weather Channel here. I am a Weather Channel simp. Uh, So that's the first point. And Americans agree with me. Americans are like, yeah, they're the most trustworthy. You want to know why? Because they are. Then we get the BBC. That's hilarious because they're obviously not American. BBC is an American. So Americans are like, yeah, we don't trust any of our outlets. (laughs) We certainly don't trust them more than the Weather Channel and more than uh, the BBC. Then PBS is in third. Again, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, sometimes they aren't great, but most of the time PBS does some really interesting, good stuff. Um, Wall Street Journal, plus 13. CBS, plus 7. The Associated Press, plus 7. National Public Radio, plus 7. Reuters, plus 7. Washington Post, plus 5. ABC, plus 5. Guardian, plus 4. NBC, plus 4. New York Times, plus 3. USA Today, plus 2. Time Magazine, plus 1. Newsweek is at 0. Now, notice something. Those are mostly print outlets. Print outlets are respected and trusted more than, look at the rest of them, Newsmax, minus 3. CNN, minus 4. One American News, minus 6. MSNBC, minus 11. Fox News, minus 14. Breitbart, minus 15. Here's why the American people are correct. Virtually all the ones that are underwater are the, the TV news outlets, the cable news outlets. They're underwater. People don't trust them, and they're right not to trust them. They're the worst in the country. They are sensationalist. Uh, they do conspiracy theories, albeit of different varieties. You've got Russiagate on MSNBC and CNN, and you've got the January 6th stuff on Fox News and One American News and Newsmax. Nobody trusts them. They're underwater. People are right to not trust them. Okay, so I, th- I honestly think with some minor changes, Americans kind of nailed um, which outlets they trust the most and which outlets they trust the least. Now, let's get to the specific names and news. So this is really something. Which media personalities are trusted more by Democrats and Republicans? So let's put aside the Democrat and the Republican thing here and just look at that purple thing, which is of all U.S. adult citizens. So Anderson Cooper is leading with 44%. 44%. Then you have David Muir, like roughly 12 people know who he is, and uh, he's at 40%, and he's number two at 40%. Then you get Brett Baer at like 39%, George Stephanopoulos at like 38 or 37, Wolf Blitzer at about the same, Chris Wallace at maybe 35, Laura Ingram about 35, Tucker Carlson about 35, maybe 34, Rachel Maddow drops down to like maybe 32, something like that, or, you know, 34, 35, something like that. She's below Tucker, though. That's noteworthy. Gail King is just below that. Uh, Jake Tapper, a little bit above 30. Don Lemon, a little bit above 30. Or, no, Don Lemon is at 30. Sean Hannity is above 30. Joy Reid is in the 20s. And Alex Jones is... uh, they don't even have a number, a purple thing for him there. They just have Democrats and Republicans. About, this is interesting. A little more than 20% of Democrats trust Alex Jones. Uh, and about, what, 30? No, I'm sorry. I, I misread that. About a little more than 20%, tw- like 21% of Democrats believe Alex Jones. I think he's the most trustworthy. And what is it, like 26 percent of Republicans view him that way. So anyway, the least trusted name is Alex Jones, followed by Joy Reid and Don Lemon. Those are the least trusted. And the most trusted are Anderson Cooper, David Muir, and Brett Baer. Now, 
So the thing that's interesting to me is that almost nobody knows who David Muir is, and he made, like, the top of the list. That's hilarious. Uh, Brett Baer is, like, one of the least noteworthy personalities on Fox News. And Anderson Cooper has the uh, personality of watching paint dry. And he got number one in the country. But, by the way, that's weighted mostly because so many Democrats like him. So the number of Democrats that like it sort of pulled him up a little bit. But anyway, there you have it. But the main takeaway here is this. The person who is leading, the person who is leading only has 44% trust. So that means the most trusted is still not really that trusted. And like I said, there's big partisan differences here with everyone involved. But... That means, like, nobody, very few Americans actually trust anybody in the media. And that is a colossal indictment on the media, which is why we've seen polls that, you know, in recent years, the media has been at a historic low when it comes to trust. People don't trust the media. And I feel like this is further verification of that. Because if nobody's above 50%, like, Jesus Christ, there was probably a time when, you know, um, you had people above, like, 60, 70% trust in the media. I don't know who, Walter Cronkite maybe, I don't know. But there was a time when the media was viewed as like, oh, these are the watchdogs of power. These are the people who are looking out for us, regular people. And now, like, again, the most popular is 44%. That's astonishing. So, again, I think Americans are largely correct in the sense that they don't trust the media much. But in terms of the, name on, the names on this list... I mean, shit, I don't trust. I don't think I trust any of them. I I really don't. I really don't. There are some who are more ideological and less ideological, but they're just uh, robots. Like what? Wolf Blitzer is the most bland person on here, and he's just a a conventional wisdom talking point machine. It is kind of hilarious, though, that Tucker Carlson is way above. Tucker Carlson is above Rachel Maddow, but he's also like way above Don Lemon and Joy Reid. And you would think that that would give, you know, MSNBC and these hosts pause and say, well, what are we doing wrong? But it won't. <laughs> it won't at all. Um, but really, none of them are all that trustworthy for different reasons. Okay. Next. All right, so I have for you guys a uh, really cringe J.D. Vance ad. I have no idea why he chose to run this. It's goofy. It's weird. Uh, but let's take a look. Are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? The media calls us racist for wanting to build Trump's wall. They censor us, but it doesn't change the truth. Joe Biden's open border is killing Ohioans, with more illegal drugs and more Democrat voters pouring into this country. This issue is personal. I nearly lost my mother to the poison coming across our border. No child should grow up an orphan. I'm J.D. Vance, and I approve this message because whatever they call us, we will put America first. What? What? Are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? Now, I get it. He's saying that to be like, we're not racist and we don't hate Mexicans. Like, we just want a strong border and stuff like that. But, hey, Dippy, go look at the actual numbers. 
First of all, when Biden was vice president, they called Obama the deporter-in-chief. He deported more people than any president in American history. Now, under, um, under Biden, we have remain in Mexico in place. That's a Trump-era policy. He's copying Trump on the border in many respects. Until, I think, very recently, the courts struck down Title 42, but Biden was using Title 42 to deport people without due process as well. So the argument is, hey, we're in a pandemic. We don't have time for this due process thing. If somebody comes to the country illegally, we're just going to ship them right out because it's, you know, it's a health threat or whatever. Biden was doing Remain in Mexico and Title 42. He was deporting a colossal number of people. So he was doing the policies that you say you want, and they just, what do they do? They just say, Biden's open border. Biden's open border. What are you talking about? These people don't care about facts. He is a narrative humper. Biden's a Democrat, and Democrats are weak on the border, so I'm just going to say Biden has an open border, even though he doesn't have an open border at all by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, he's deporting way too much, and he's skipping due process and all that. And then she, he talks about, you know, my mom died because of the poison coming across our border. You want to talk about, look, so we had, you know, like an opioid epidemic in the country, right? Right. Then um, they cracked down on the opioids. And to fill that gap, now there's fentanyl that's killing people. There's an argument that that's sort of what killed um, Michael K. Williams. There's an argument that that killed Philip Seymour Hoffman. That definitely killed Mac Miller. And so the problem is when you crack down on the pills, then you get the counterfeit pills, and the counterfeit pills could have fentanyl, and the fentanyl is way more powerful than, you know, Percocet, Vicodin, even heroin. And so people overdose accidentally. So the real if you seriously want to talk about this solution, the solution is to legalize tax and regulate. The solution is to have quality control of the substances that we're putting in our body. That's the solution. J.D. Vance is talking about it like, if we just crack down on the border harder, everything will work out. No, that's not the way it works at all. These, like, they're un, people are unserious when it comes to drug policy in this country because we learned about this through prohibition, too. You banned alcohol, so then alcohol was made illegally on the black market. Crime spiked. The mafia got much more powerful. They made alcohol in bathtubs. Sometimes you got bad batches and people died from it. When you legalized alcohol, it was a much better situation for everybody. Crime dropped and there were no more deaths from bad batches. It's the same thing with the drugs. But instead of talking about this in a serious way, here's the policy that maybe would fix the problem, right? He doesn't do it. He's just demagogues about the border and demagogues about, like, Mexicans coming in the country as he pretends like he's not. Like, I'm not a racist. I don't hate Mexicans. But let me tell you why a policy of, like, keeping out undocumented immigrants who are south of the border, why that's the right policy. It's just, oh, God, it's so stupid. Everything about it is so stupid. Ugh. And then really, like, you could argue the problem was big pharma getting people hooked on the opioids in the first place. So why are you blaming, like, random Mexicans? What? Right? Talk more about big pharma. Talk more about the policy solutions to the crisis. Uh, more, fewer people were dying before we cracked down on the pills than are dying now. So I know, crazy fact, and it's an inconvenient one for people in their narrative, but nonetheless, he moves forward. 
What a dumb ad. Are you racist? Do you hate Mexicans? I'm going to do the right policy no matter what the media calls me. But that's not going to fix the problem. And by the way, is a fact that a lot of people on the far right don't know. If you look at the numbers, both documented immigrants and undocumented immigrants commit crime at a much lower rate compared to American citizens. Nope, can't talk about that because we just want to portray them as criminals and all MS-13 and like they're the problem in the country. It's classic scapegoating. The problem is not somebody who has a lot less power than you do and a lot less money than you do. The problem is the corporations and the billionaires and the owner class are ripping people off and rigging the rules and the laws in their favor and keeping working people down. This guy's just feeding the, the divide and conquer mentality. This guy you know, wants you to scapegoat Mexicans and the border problem for all of our problems. It's absurd. It's absurd. Are you racist? Do you hate Mexicans? And then he pretends Biden has an open border when Biden, if anything, is deporting way too many and skipping due process. Every aspect of this ad is pathetic. And by the way, this guy is extra desperate because he's getting draxed by some little smug prick named Josh Mandel. Like, just getting obliterated. This is a guy who tweets hilariously stupid things, but he's more of a Trump-like Republican, and J.D. Vance is, like, trying so hard to out-Trump him, and he comes up with shit like this. You're so desperate, and you reek of it, and it's, it's obvious. Reel it in, dude. Reel it in. All right, final story of the day. So Megyn Kelly, um, she's doing a podcast now. She's trying to uh, get in on the podcast game where many people have had phenomenal success, whether it be, you know, she probably looks at Joe Rogan and goes, wow, I can't believe he, how did he create that? That's incredible. She probably looks at, you know, Crystal and Sagar and Breaking Points and sees like, oh, Crystal used to be on MSNBC and then she went to the Hill and now she's doing her own thing and she's doing well with her own thing and look at the audience. Wow, look at the audience she uh, cultivated, et cetera, et cetera. So she's trying to get in on it. Now, here's the problem, though. Megyn Kelly in her DNA is that old school kind of corporate media presentation. You know, she's very proper and got good posture and the way she talks is, it just, it fits more in that format. Uh, She doesn't have the outsider, independent media, new media edge and delivery that one would need to have the authenticity to make it in this realm. Okay, but having said that, I'm sure her numbers are fine. You know, and she's got plenty of friends in the industry, so she's navigating it as best she can. Well, she went on this, uh, she either had these guys on her podcast or went on some other podcast, what's called Ruthless or something like that. I don't know. Uh, and in the midst of what she thinks is like an anti-elitist rant, which is hilarious, Megyn Kelly calling anybody anti-elitist, it's hilarious. She makes what is quite possibly the most elitist point I've ever heard. Let's watch and then I'll respond. I mean, not that anybody cares what she has to say in response to anything, but that was her push in response to these polling numbers and inflation. So she was like, you know, if we could just like, stick to the agenda, get the TV pass, push this stuff there, and get rid of college debt, all, you know, college students, you know, she's a one-trick pony. Everything should be free. We go back to our socialist roots, and then the Democrats won't be facing a bloodbath in November, and all these numbers will turn around. Free college for everyone. Didn't you guys have somebody pay for your college? I mean, it's just such a stunning. I mean, I know you, you're super hot on this one, Smug. Uh, I mean, especially because I remember going to state school, which was inside my budget, 
I remember being a bouncer at a college dive bar. I mean, <laughs> everyone else in this country has always figured out a way to budget for their education. And then, again, it, it's progressivism masquerading as this is compassion. No, it's not. It's a handout to the wealthiest liberal coastal. It's like the liberal coastal elites embodied. It's the people who have taken out massive loans. It's like, you know, I think about it in my own life. My my audience knows that my dad died suddenly when I was 15 of a heart attack. And my mom already had two kids in college at that point. My brother and sister are older than I am. They're in college. She's trying to, you know, she, she was only 45. We were not, in, we weren't rich to begin with. So it's not like he had some big fat life insurance policy. He had like the bare minimum you have when you're in your 40s and you're a professor, which is what he was. Um, anyway, what did she do? She used the entirety of that, that payment. To, to pay for the rest, what she could, of my brothers and sisters' college and my college education. And all three of us had to take out loans on top of it, of course. So, like, do I think now that, you know, I would have been better off if the federal government had stepped in? Look, it would have been nice, but that's, that, I don't think the neighbor should have to pay for my college education. And my mom made a sacrifice. She could have been living off of that money. Suddenly she didn't have a, you know, two-income home. But she used it to help her children. Like, that's what parents do. They scrimp and they save and they do what's necessary to pay for things like education. And we took out loans, too. And then we paid those loans back. That, why should these not those kids today? Oh, my God. I, I, you know, the part about this clip that got under my skin the most is the thing I already alluded to, which is she thinks she's making this anti-elitist point when you are making the most elitist point I've ever heard. Sending kids to college is the most populist thing you can do. It gives people who otherwise might not have a chance, a chance to make a decent life without massively going into debt. I'm amazed at how she can flip it in her mind as if, She's a multimillionaire. Let me look this up. Let me look this up. Megan Kelly net worth. Let me see this. $45 million. Now, look, sometimes these things are wrong. Let's be overly kind. Let's say it's $30 million. $30 million. You are a multimillionaire saying these snot-nosed kids don't deserve college. And you think it's anti-elitist. Megan, look in the mirror. You are the elitist. You're as elitist as it gets. How do you not understand that? Let's go through some of their arguments because, God, it made me want to bang my head against a wall. Um, She brings up AOC and says, well, she thinks we should eliminate student loan debt. Yeah, and she's right about that. She goes, see, she's a one-trick pony. That's all she wants to talk about is doing something. Okay, wait, 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 wait. First of all, you are a one-trick pony. You have simped for the Republican Party relentlessly on TV. Now, granted, it was more the establishment Republicans, not the Trump-type Republicans, but she simped for the Republican Party to no end. They're the biggest one-trick pony in the world. All they want to do is more tax cuts for the wealthy and more deregulation. That is their answer to everything. It's not a one-trick pony thing to say, I want to eliminate student loan debt, because guess what? Part of Build Back Better was eliminating student loan debt, elder care, uh, lower prescription drug prices, extended child tax credit, 
The list goes on and on of the different policies that were laid out. That's not one-trick pony. That's the opposite of a one-trick pony. That's like, let's do 17 different things, all of which poll very popular. You're the one-trick pony. You are. That part got under my skin. Then she says, or, or the other guy says, one of the ruthless hosts, who they called Smug, awesome nickname, uh, and fitting. Everyone else in this country always figured out a way to budget for their education. Yeah, that's because... Back in, like, the 1950s, college cost 17 cents and a Pop-Tart, you dippy. Everybody used to be able to pay for it. Yeah, it was much less expensive back then. And beyond that, we also have had a system for a very long time of free college, or excuse me, free schooling up through high school. Now, I, don't, I will never understand for the life of me why these idiots don't take their logic and apply it across the board, which would be, you think we should have some weird private system where people go massively in debt to go to college. Why don't you think that should be the case for high school? Why shouldn't everybody have to pay out of fucking pocket for kindergarten and first grade and second grade and third grade and then middle school and then high school? Why? I'm consistent. I think schooling in a civilized society, schooling is one of the first things you put on that list of things that are off the table and paid for via our tax dollars, along with police, along with the fire department, along, along with infrastructure, along with health care. So I say, yeah, let's pay for everybody's school across the board. Why not? Every level of it. Why not? So I'm consistent with my logic. They think you should go massively into debt for college, but high school will give a pass, and that can be paid for via, via tax dollars. There's no consistency. There is no logic there. This is just reactionary garbage. That's all it is. It's the way it works now, so why shouldn't it keep working like this? Oh, I don't know, maybe because there's $1.7 trillion in student loan debt and people get out in the real world and don't have a fucking pot to piss in? Maybe that's why. God damn it. Holy shit. Um, then, okay, this part is astonishing. She says, she goes on to explain. I mean, credit for the honesty. She goes on to explain, look, yeah, I took out some loans for my college, but also, also, uh, my dad died when um, he was 45, which is young. I, look, I can relate. My dad died when I was 56. When I was 56. He was 56. I was in my early 20s. Um, she said, well, he had a life insurance policy, and my mom used that to help pay for my college and my siblings' college. Megan, you're making my point, and you're too stupid to realize it. What about the people who don't have life insurance money? What about them? You're admitting you got help from your parents. Not everybody can get help from their parents. Now, even if you say, hey, we weren't economically well off, but then we got the life insurance money from my dad, and that helped a little bit, and I still took out loans, but I got the help. What about people who have no help? None. Which is, by the way, a lot of working class people. A lot of working class people. She brings up that she had help to make the point that others shouldn't have help. And then look, Mike drop at this point. This is the biggest point here. Would it, she says, would it have been nice if the federal government uh, paid for it? Quote, it would have been nice. Okay, well then we're in full agreement. What the fuck is the rest of your rant for? What's it for? No. It, 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 these, guys, these people are insufferable. They're unbearable. They are the ultimate elitists as they act like they're anti-elitist. This idea, this notion that, oh, it's only the rich. 
you know, who would benefit from student loan debt elimination. Nonsense. So many rich people have their parents pay for their whole fucking college experience. It would help a lot of working class people, of course. And to the extent it does help anybody who's from an upper middle class background or an upper class background, I don't care. That's a good thing. I hope those people who have money also get Social Security because universal programs are objectively better because everybody's in it together. God damn it. And, you know, she thinks it's a brilliant point to say, the neighbor shouldn't have to pay for my college education. Well, why did the neighbor have to pay for your high school education? And do you support that? Why did the neighbor have to pay for your middle school education? Do you support that? Most people go, yes to grade school, yes to middle school, yes to high school. No for college! No for college! Well, a college degree today is like a high school degree used to be decades ago. I I give up. (laughs) All right, that's the end of this year. Look, don't fall for the fake ass. This is the fakest populism I've ever seen. It's the most elitist shit masquerading as, like, looking out for the little guy as they shit on the little guy. Megyn Kelly, um, you're a joke. I think I've said everything I need to say. All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.